as you hear about this and that we're going to talk about all the problems the church has, you're probably thinking to yourself, why are we talking about all the problems the church has? I mean, you know, why are we drawing attention to this? Why are we, you know, why are we shining the spotlight on the problems? This, this doesn't seem to be good. Why don't we ignore the problems? We'll pretend like we don't have problems and then that'll be better that way. That's one group of people. I think there's others of you who are here who go, you know what, church has got some problems, and it's maybe it's time we started talking about some of these things. Maybe it's good for us to get this out into the air, out into the open, and have this conversation. Because whether you're in this camp or whether you're in that camp, and I, I think this is the camp of folks that are saying, you know what, I don't know that I don't know that I really am sold on church because it's so messed up. You're, you're hesitant. And then there's others who've been in the church for forever, and I think they're going, you know, no, I, I've been here for a while, and I don't want to talk about that bad stuff. I, I think regardless of what camp you're in, I think that we would all agree that, yeah, the church isn't perfect. I don't think anybody would say, yeah, no, 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 the church is totally perfect. Like, we've totally got, like, no problems. I said nobody ever. We know that there's problems. You just, you go to church for a while. You meet church people. I mean, seriously, some church people got problems. We all know that. You turn on the news and what? You got some preacher, you know, they're buying a brand new, you know, jet for their church because Jesus wants them to have a jet, didn't you know? Um, or, or you've got a preacher who, you know, he's absconded with a couple hundred thousand dollars and maybe the church secretary as well. And you've got problems. You've got problems. And here's the thing. The church has never existed in a state of perfection. The church has never existed in a state of perfection. The church has always had problems. If you don't believe me, read through the book of Acts. It is the very first history we have of the church. And in the book of Acts, you will read about problem after problem after problem that the early church deals with. Whether it's, it's folks being selfish and greedy and dealing with wealth, or whether it's people um, you know, having all sorts of racial tension and issues, all of that's there in the book of Acts. And the church has always struggled with problems. Problems. But the church was God's idea. And the church was God's idea for us. Here's the problem with the church is that it's full of imperfect people. And whenever you get imperfect people and put them together, you've got problems. If you could make a church with perfect people, it would be really awesome, but you wouldn't be welcome. <laughs> Just, just being honest with each other here. Okay, that's how it is. The church is full of imperfect people, and so it will always be an imperfect church. Thankfully, we have in the New Testament writings and instructions about how we can do church better, how we can be a work in progress and not just a hot mess all of the time. Uh, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians to a church that is struggling. Now, Paul is an early church planner. He's an early church. We might think of him as a coach. He's coaching these churches uh, as they grow, as they become uh, active bodies uh, of faith that are reaching out to other people. Paul is coaching them and helping them to become uh, a productive and, and healthy church. And he's writing this letter here to the church at Corinth. And the church at Corinth has got some real issues, okay? They live in a city that was known for, well, an ancient guy put it this way. He said, it takes a wealthy man to make it through the city of Corinth. 
In other words, if you didn't have a lot of money, Corinth was going to destroy you because there were so many things that would clamor for you and take things from you that, that you had to have a lot to get through the city of Corinth. Uh, think of it today like a modern-day Las Vegas. It was full of every kind of vice you might imagine, but it was also like on the, the port and so uh, city, and so it, they had a lot of sailors coming through, and sailors are always known for being high upstanding moral citizens. And so imagine a port city with Las Vegas. I, when I teach New Testament, I say it's this. Imagine taking Las Vegas and putting it in San Francisco, where you've got you know, a lot of wealth and money and tourism already, and you just put the two on top of each other, and that's kind of what the ancient city of Corinth was like. And so you had a lot of people who'd been sucked into a lot of different things, who'd been chewed up and spit out and had been hurt and been dragged into all manner of, of evil, and it had ruined them, and they found themselves in this church, and the church was helping them put you know, their lives back together. But the problem with imperfect people is that they make an imperfect church. And the problem with these people who are coming out of Corinth is they're bringing Corinth into the church, and it's a problem. And so Paul writes to the church to tell them how they can sort of put this together. And that's what we're going to be going through in this series. We're going to start today in chapter 1. And Paul, after he's got a greeting in verse 4, here's what he starts the letter by saying. He says, I always thank God for you. I thank Him because of the grace He has given to you who belong to Christ Jesus. Now, despite all of their imperfections, Paul looks at that church and he says, you know what? You are a beautiful group of people. You're a beautiful organization. You display God's grace. Paul says, I look at you and I see where you've been and I see where you are now and I see who you are becoming in Christ. And I just see God's grace covering that entire place. I see Jesus when I look at you, I think is what Paul is saying. And that's what the church is about. The church is all about Jesus. And churches all across America, all across the world, they get in trouble when they forget that, that the church is all about Jesus. Here at Bowling Green Christian Church, we say it this way. We say that we exist to become less so that Jesus can become more in us and in our neighborhoods. We believe that the world doesn't need more Weston, and he, the world doesn't need more of you. The world needs more of Jesus, and that if we could somehow get out of the way and allow Jesus to become more in our lives, that the world would be a, a more better place. Uh, we believe that when we become less and Jesus becomes more, that people's lives become changed. I, I've personally seen that happen. I've seen people's marriages become uh, get saved. I've seen children grow into caring adults. I've seen the poor get cared for. I've seen communities thrive as a result of the church putting Jesus first. It's an amazing thing. Uh, the church is all about Christ, and Christ is everything that we need. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 5, and, and uh, chapter 1, 5 through 8, he says this, he says, you have been blessed in every way because of him, that's Jesus. All your teaching of the truth is better. Your understanding of it is more complete. Our witness about Christ has been proved to be true in you. There is no gift of the Holy Spirit that you don't have. You are full of hope as you wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to come again. God will keep you strong to the very end. Then you will be without blame on the day our Lord Jesus Christ returns. Notice Paul has started by saying, listen, I look at you and I see Jesus has brought you together. And then he says at the end, he says, you are going to be strong as you wait till Christ's return. He says, and in the meantime, you've got everything you need in Christ. You've got every spiritual gift. You've got the capacity to remain strong and to be faithful. 
You've got everything you need in Jesus. That's why the church is about Jesus. Because in Jesus, we've got everything that we need. And so when we get together, we need to be talking about Jesus. And we should be celebrating Jesus. And we should be bringing glory to Jesus. And we should be focused on Jesus. The problem, however, is this, is that often in the church, instead of Jesus getting to go first, we put ourselves first. It happened in Corinth. We're going to see that here in a few verses. And it happens in churches today. I suspect it even happens here. In your bulletins, you've got a uh, blue ribbon um, right here. Here you go. It says first place. Everybody get that out and hold it. Hold it up. Come on now. Let's all be team players. Good. Good. Some of you understand team player. Perfect. Okay. All right. I want you to hold on this. You can put it down now. Just keep it. Hold in your hand. You've got a blue ribbon here because here's what we're trying to do. We're trying to remind ourselves that when Jesus isn't first, we all lose. That's the simple take-home message. You, somebody asks you, what did you learn in church today? That's your answer, okay? When Jesus isn't first, we all lose. That's what Paul is going to remind the Corinthian church, and that's what I'm hoping to remind us of today as we look at this text. Because here's the thing, the church fails when Jesus isn't first. Now, how did the church at Corinth get started? Well, if you go back to Acts 18, we actually read the story. We have the history of the church getting started. And in Acts 18, Paul shows up in the city of Corinth, and he starts to tell people the story of Jesus. This is what we call the good news or the gospel. He starts to tell the gospel story to the people in the church at Corinth, or to the people in Corinth, and then all of a sudden people are drawn to him. Paul tells the the, the good news. He tells the gospel about how Jesus is God's son. He came to earth. He gave his life. He died on a cross to pay the price for our sin, sin being the bad things we think, say, and do. He he paid the price for that, and then he was buried in the tomb, and then three days later, he was uh, raised from the dead. And when he did that, he conquered death, and he paved the way for us to live forever with him in heaven. And that's great news. And Paul starts to tell that story, and he starts to tell that story to the people, and people start to hear that story. And they start to get drawn in. And they start to say, you mean there's a God that loves us so much that he would send his only son to die for us? And Paul's like, that's exactly what I'm telling you. And they would say, well, tell me more about that. And they would gather. And this group of people started to come together around the story of Jesus. And we call that a church. That's what the church is. It's a group of people gathered around the story of Jesus. And they started to say, well, I want to act like Jesus. And I want to share the story of Jesus with other people. And and this church forms... Because Jesus is lifted up, people are drawn together. And so Paul, he he continues to teach and he continues to coach them. But then eventually Paul leaves because that's sort of Paul's MO. Paul will go and start a church in one place and he'll go to another place and start another church. Now, Paul will often leave folks behind. People, we know some of their names, guys by the name of Timothy and Titus and Apollos. And they will stay and do ministry in these places and, and raise up leadership. And then they'll move on, and the church sort of becomes its own self-sustaining body of believers we call the church today. And things go really well so long as they're telling the story of Jesus and they're gathered around that. But, but eventually, after Paul leaves and other you know, preachers come through, they start to get distracted by the messengers that they forget the message of Jesus. And they start to form these alliances around particular people. Uh, Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11 through 12. He says this, my brothers and sisters, some people who live in Chloe's house. Now, who's Chloe? We don't know exactly who she is, but she's an early leader in the church. She maybe actually housed the people because they didn't have church buildings back then. They maybe met in her house. And so she's a respected member of this community. And Paul says, they've sent me a letter 
and they're telling me that you're not getting along, that you guys are fighting. And he says, here's what I mean. One of you says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, and another says, I follow Peter, and still another says, I follow Christ. What Paul is doing here, most scholars think, is that he's actually quoting to them like their own party lines. Like they've divided their church up into groups, like the pro-Paul group and the pro-Apollos group and the pro-Peter group and then the the pro-Christ group. And there's four groups in this church and they're all divided up. And, And Paul is saying, this is not good. I mean, you can see how this would happen, right? I mean, Paul is the founder of the church, and so, you know, we'll make you guys the pro-Paul group. So, so the, the pro-Paul group is like, you know, we want to be like the original, like Paul is the original, and we want to be just like that, and we want to be like Paul, and Paul started it, and we're all about what Paul did, and Paul does it right. You know, the, what kind of ministry is the right kind of ministry? Paul's ministry. And so that's what the pro-Paul group says. You've got the pro-Apollos group, and the pro-Apollos group says, you know what? Do you remember Apollos coming through? Apollos, we know, was a young guy. He's a real dynamic preacher. People really liked him. And so they're like, do you remember how exciting it was when Apollos was here and how many people came to know Jesus? And maybe some of them came to know Jesus under the ministry of Apollos. And so they were all drawn into that. And they're like, we like Apollos and we want to make a church like Apollos made the church. And so you've got this group and this group at odds with each other. You've got another group over here that's, you know, the pro-Peter group. And Peter represents super tradition. And, and the Peter group is like, you know what, Paul is good, but man, Peter actually walked and talked with Jesus for three years, and, and, and there's no school like the old school, and we want to be like Peter, because Peter, he's, you know, he's legit, and give us that old-time religion, that's what we want, and they go back to Peter, and they say, that's the kind of church we want to have, and so you've got these groups warring with each other. You've got the fourth group there that says, we follow Christ. Now, what's interesting to me is that Paul doesn't say you should be like them. Uh, Paul actually includes them in the same group of people who've been dividing the church, the pro-Apollos and the pro-Paul and the pro-Peter group. He says, you know, there's some of you also that are dividing it, and you're saying, we're just for Jesus. And I'll tell you, I actually think that that's maybe the most dangerous group. Because what they're doing isn't just following Jesus. They're creating divisions, too. But the scary part about the pro-Christ group, the people who say, I just follow Christ, what they're actually doing is they're taking their own preferences and they're saying these are God's preferences. At least the pro-Paul group says, well, you know, this is how Paul would have done it. At least the pro-Apollos group says that's how Apollos would have done it. And the pro-Peter group says this is how Peter would have done it. But the pro-Christ group, they sort of outdo everybody. They say, you know what, my preferences are equated to God's preferences. And friends, we call that idolatry, when you remake God in your own image. And Paul says, there's no room for any of this. All you're doing is creating division. All you're trying to do is put yourself first. That's what you're trying to do. And Paul says, there's no room for that in the church because we all lose when Jesus isn't first. Now, now here's the truth. We all have preferences. We all have things that we like and things that we don't like. But we only have one Lord and Savior, and His name's Jesus. And that's what we've got. And so we've got to put Him first if we're going to work together to accomplish our mission. When we turn our eyes inward and on ourselves and on our preferences, and we lift them up and say, this is the best way, or it's the only way, or worse of all, it's God's way, we've got some problems. The question we constantly need to ask is, who's coming in first? Is it me? Is it you? Is it Jesus? Because that's who needs to come in first. 
We exist as a church to become less so that Jesus can become more. We exist to put Jesus in first place. Now, why do we do that? Well, 1 Corinthians tells us, 18, verse 18, let's pick up there. It says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Paul right here just acknowledges something. He says, listen, this, this Jesus thing, this, this idea that a guy would die and then come back from the grave three days later, he says it doesn't make sense to everybody. He says there's some people that it doesn't make sense to. Maybe it doesn't make sense to you. Maybe you're struggling with that. And Paul says, you know, I, I get that for some people they don't, they don't get that. Now, it's his prayer that everybody would get that. That's why he keeps telling the story of Jesus. He says, but for those people who have believed it, those people who have truly encountered Jesus, he says, we have found something true about it. What seems like foolishness, Paul says, is actually the very power of God. He'll go on in verse 22 and say this, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Friends, we want Jesus and Jesus only, and no substitution, because Jesus alone is the wisdom and power of God. Now listen, there are churches all over the world. We don't have to go all over the world. There's churches all over Bowling Green, okay? And they've got all sorts of different things that they do. Some of them sing, you know, worship without instruments, and some have, you know, big glorious organs, and some have bands, and and some sit in silence. Yes, yeah, seriously, they just sit in silence. And some churches uh, have preachers that preach for an hour, and some churches have uh, preachers that preach for 30 minutes, and some churches have preachers that preach for 10 minutes. Now, I'm not going to tell you where that is. Um, and, you know, we've got all those things happening. And some churches take communion every week like we do, and some do it once a month, and some do it once a quarter, you know, whether they need to or not, and some do it, you know, like every six months. And all that stuff is, is good, But none of it matters nearly as much as putting Jesus first, as lifting up the name of Jesus. Here's what Jesus said. He said it this way. He said, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Now, Jesus is talking about being crucified. And and he's saying, listen, you know, when I am lifted up, people are going to be drawn to me. And the same thing is true today. When you start to tell the story of Jesus, people are drawn to this idea that there's a God who loves us so much, he would give his son to die for us. That's true whether you tell the story of Jesus in English or Spanish or Chinese or or Swahili or, or Hindi or any language. When you start to tell the story of Jesus, people are drawn to him. And so what matters is that we lift up Jesus every chance that we get and that we lift up Jesus in front of as many people as we can so that way as many people as can can be drawn to Jesus because God said, listen, I don't desire that anybody should perish. He says, I want everybody to come and know me. That's what it's about. If we don't lift up Jesus, what are we doing? We're lifting up ourselves, our own ideas, our preferences, and we end up worshiping something far less than Jesus himself. This is why we all lose when Jesus isn't first. And so our job as a church, if we're going to try to move beyond being a hot mess, is going to be to put Jesus first, to lift him up. And when we do that, God will use us to highlight his strength and his wisdom Paul's going to go on in some very unflattering language, and he's going to describe the church at Corinth. 
Uh, let, let's read. Paul will actually describe sort of what a mess these people are. He says, brothers and th- sisters, think of what you were when God chose you. Most people are trying to forget. He says, not many of you were considered wise by human standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you belonged to important families. But God chose the foolish things of the world, in other words, you, to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of the world, in other words, you, to shame the strong. God chose the things of this world that are common and looked down on, in other words, you. He chose what is not considered to be important, to do away with what is considered to be important, so that no one can brag to God. Paul is telling the church at Corinth, listen, you're not that special. You're not that smart. You're not that strong. You're not that influential. He said, but none of that matters. He says, because when you lift up Jesus, what you do is actually you highlight his strength. You know, it's like this. It's, it's all of our imperfections. What they do when we acknowledge them and we acknowledge who Jesus is, all of our imperfections act as a giant spotlight. But they don't spotlight us or our imperfection, and they don't shine a light on who we are. They shine a light on who Jesus is, and it highlights and magnifies the beauty and perfection of the power of Jesus This is why you do not have to have your life together to talk to other people about Jesus. This is why you don't have to have perfect attendance in order to invite somebody to church. Your life might be a hot mess, but that's okay because Jesus can handle it. And if we're putting Jesus first and not us, then the pressure's on him. Friends, this is why we all lose when Jesus isn't first because none of us can handle that. Only God can. Uh, the phrase hot mess kind of an interesting phrase i don't know if you've uh done any studying on the history of the phrase hot mess um done a little bit here's what i've learned is we didn't invent it in this century as a matter of fact it comes back to us from the early 1900s in the 1900s this phrase was used a hot mess it was a military term and the term referred to uh, an encampment or a base where you could get hot food. That's what it was. It was a hot mess. Now, this food wasn't always good. They're talking about like what, like Merriam-Webster, if you, if you care enough, you can go look this up. They're talking about like what, what constituted a hot mess. The food just happened to be hot. Like it might be oatmeal boiled with bones so that way you had some protein in there, but it was hot. And it was preferred because a hot mess is preferred to a cold mess, okay? You wanted a hot mess because it meant you were going to eat something warm and it was going to be good or at least better well maybe when we want to see that maybe we'll just say it's good for you you knew that if you were there and it had a hot mess that it would give you what you needed to keep going now fast forward to today and a hot mess just kind of loosely defined you can look you know urban dictionary wherever you want to kind of where you're ever going to, you're going to define slang language um it's going to say hot mess is something like this it's it's somebody that looks okay or good on the outside but on the inside they're a train wreck so if you put these two definitions together you've got a real sort of uh contrast don't you one of them you know looks good but is a total wreck and the other one maybe doesn't look good but it's good for you and the question is which do you want to be which do we as a church want to be? Do we want to look good on the outside but be a total train wreck in the interior? Or do we just want to sort of acknowledge the fact that, no, yeah, we're kind of a mess, but we found what's good for us, and that's Jesus. And that's what brings us together. So that's the question. What are we going to be? Are we going to be people that put ourselves first and make, make sure that we look good, make sure that people think we're coming in first place? Or are we going to be people that are going to say, no, I'm going to make Jesus, I'm going to put him in first place this week. 
All right, here's the challenge. Here's your blue ribbon. Here's what I want you to do with this. Okay, you ready? I've got, a, I've got a task for you. I want you to take this, and you can either fold it and put it in your pocket, or you can put it in your wallet or your purse, or if you really wanted to, you could pin it on. That'd be pretty awesome. Um, I'm not going to do that. Um, you can. Um, but I want you to take this wherever you are tempted to not put Jesus first. Some of you might be taping it on your computer screen. Others of you might be taping it to your phone. Some of you might be taking it to work. Some of you are going, I need more than one ribbon. It's okay. We got like 50 out there. We'll give them out. They're free, you know, for you. Um, let's do this. Let's say, you know what? We recognize that we're a hot mess. We recognize that we are a work in progress. But step one to being a work in progress is putting Jesus first. And so that's the challenge this week is to be people that are going to lift Jesus up and put them first. Uh, as the worship team comes out, uh, we're going to sing a song here in a second. And I really want us, as we sing the song, to use this time to dedicate ourselves to putting Jesus first. Uh, let, let me pray. Gracious Lord, I thank you so much for everybody that's here. And I know there's people here who have already surrendered their lives to you and have said, you know what, I, I want to put Jesus first. God, I would put myself in that group, but I know that I have many times failed to put you first in many different places in my life. And so, God, for that, I, I, I confess that. I ask for your forgiveness and your grace. And I pray, God, that this week you would help me and all of my brothers and sisters here who, who want to put you first, God. Uh, would you help us, remind us, and, and convict us, God, of the times and places where we put ourselves first and not you? And God, would you help us to do that this week, to put you first in everything? God, for my brothers and sisters uh, who are here and maybe who haven't put you first in their lives. God, this week, I don't know how you would speak to them, but I pray that you would speak to them in a particular way where, where you might show them how when they put you first, God, that you meet them in that place and you do something amazing. God, we're all messes. Only you have what we need. God, would you help us to surrender our lives to you so that way, God, you could start that work that we all want to have happen in our hearts and our minds and our lives. And we'll give you the glory for that. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.